newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Vanessa Williams from The Washington Post. Hey, it's Philip Rucker at The Washington Post. Do you have a minute? Hi, this is Dan Zak. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, January 13th. Today, President Trump gets impeached for the second time. And inside a California hospital overwhelmed by the pandemic. The House will be in order. The chair lays before the House a communication from the Speaker. The Speaker's Rooms, Washington, D.C., January 13th, 2021. Today, the House of Representatives is meeting to impeach the President of the United States. It's the second time they've done that in the last 13 months. We know that we face enemies of the Constitution. We know we experienced the insurrection that violated the sanctity of the people's capital and attempted to overturn the duly recorded will of the American people. And we know that the President of the United States incited this insurrection, this armed rebellion against our common country. Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, came to the floor today and delivered a very succinct message. Donald Trump must go. He must go. He is a clear and present danger to the nation that we all love. I'm Mike DeBonis. I'm a congressional reporter for The Washington Post. So in defending President Trump against a second impeachment, I think Republicans have thrown up a a bunch of arguments gentleman uh, from California, Mr. McCarthy. The gentleman from California is recognized for one minute. You know, that it would be too divisive for the country in the wake of what happened on Wednesday. I believe impeaching the president in such a short time frame would be a mistake. A vote to impeach will further fan the flames of partisan division. Most Americans want neither inaction nor retribution. They want durable, bipartisan justice. The president bears responsibility for Wednesday's attack on Congress by mob rioters. He should have immediately denounced the mob when he saw what was unfolding. These facts require immediate action by President Trump. And stop and think about it. Do you have a functioning First Amendment when the cancel culture only allows one side to talk? Jim Jordan, the top Republican on the House Judiciary Committee and really one of the the president's most loyal supporters. And now with just one week uh, week left, they're still trying. In seven days, there will be a peaceful transfer of power, just like there has been every other time in our country. But Democrats are going to impeach President Trump again. And what does it feel like at the Capitol right now? Like, what is the vibe? It's obviously been a traumatic week for virtually anyone who works in the building. And you're so, you can feel that right now. You know, I just had a conversation with a member who a week later is still pretty shook up from what happened. So people are still very much processing the events of January 6th. And, you know, for a lot of them, I think that that's led to a bit more of a somber tone than they might adopt otherwise. But on the other hand, I've talked to a lot of Democrats who are just seething with anger. While the president failed in his attempt to upend our democracy last Wednesday's events, declared that if we do not hold him accountable and remove him from power, a future attempt 
could very well be successful. Really, have Republicans too. I denounced political violence from all ends of the spectrum, but make no mistake, the left in America has incited far more political violence than the right. For months, some have cited the metaphor that the president lit the flame. Well, they lit actual flames, actual fires, and we Time put them out. Expired. There will be order in the house. The gentleman from Ohio, do you wish to reserve your time? That's coming through. It's coming through a little bit in this four debate, but I think there's just a lot of emotions that have that have come together and there's just a lot of weariness and fear and a lot of other things all mixed together. And I think that a lot of members are just hoping to get through this day, cast their votes and and take at least a few days off. And what exactly are they charging the president on? And what is the evidence that they're using to make the case that he should be impeached on this charge? The sole charge uh, Donald Trump faces this time is incitement of insurrection. The gentleman from California is recognized for one minute. One week ago, the president incited an insurrection against Congress to prevent the peaceful transition of power. It was the most dangerous moment for our democracy in a century. Today, we invoke the remedy the founders provided for just such a lawless president. The charging document, the, the impeachment resolution that's been filed, looks to his words, not only on January 6th, but in the weeks and months leading up to it. Those insurrectionists were not patriots. They were domestic terrorists, and justice must prevail. But they did not appear out of a vacuum. They were sent here, sent here by the president with words such as a cry to fight like hell. His effort to claim that the election last November was stolen, his efforts to coerce officials to steal the election for him, and and basically paint a picture of how all of that helped incite the events of January 6th. And then, of course, on Tuesday night, Members of the House also voted on a resolution encouraging the cabinet to basically use the 25th Amendment, this other way of being able to remove President Trump from office. Catch us up on how that went down and whether that will have any effect. Well, Speaker Pelosi and a lot of Democrats basically said the quickest way to get Donald Trump out of office is for Vice President Pence and the cabinet to remove him under the 25th Amendment. That doesn't require a House vote. It doesn't require a Senate trial. It basically removes him immediately. There is a process after that for making sure he stays out of office. But given the the, the short length of time left in his term, it would have removed him through Joe Biden's inauguration. So there was an effort to try and pressure Pence to make a decision. Are you going to stand by Trump or not? And I think part of the way to look at what Democrats have done over the past week is is to force Republicans to take a position, put them on the record. Don't let them just, you know, swept by with events. They actually are going to have to figure out for themselves how they feel and how they think and what they think should be done about this. This was the first step in that. And it succeeded in one way, which was it forced Vice President Pence to say, I'm not going to remove Donald Trump from office. I think this is a bad idea. He, he said that in a letter that he sent to the House last night. But the way Pelosi had set it up was a, as an ultimatum. If there's no 25th Amendment action, then we're going to impeach you. And now they've moved to the second part of that ultimatum, and they're impeaching him now. And what do we know about 
how many Republicans are on board with this process. And I think even thinking a week ago, you would imagine that it would be hard to find Republicans who would be willing to impeach the president. But more and more, especially in the last 24 hours, it seems like there is more openness. Thank you, Mr. The gentleman from Washington is recognized for a minute. Thank you, Mr. Jordan. Madam Speaker, this is a sad day in our republic. Last week, there was a domestic threat at the door of the Capitol, and he did nothing to stop it. That is why, with a heavy heart and clear resolve, I will vote yes on these articles of impeachment. We believe that there's others who are considering it. Um, I tried to buttonhole a number of Republican impeachment votes earlier today, and several told me they're thinking about it. They said it's a hard decision. And uh, I think that the, the number will grow. We don't know how much larger it will grow. But considering that the last impeachment uh, last December uh, attracted zero Republicans, I think it's it's going to be notable that that there is any semblance of bipartisanship. And then what about in the Senate? How many people would it take to actually convict President Trump? And is there any indication that there could be something approximating those numbers? Well, we're going to have a 50-50 Senate starting on January 20th. We know that you need another 17 votes to convict. Whether you get those 17 votes, I think, is still up in the air. I think a lot depends on how Senate Majority Leader, soon-to-be Minority Leader, Mitch McConnell, plays it. Um, We had reporting yesterday that he's at least entertaining the notion that he might personally vote to convict Donald Trump, that he believes Trump has committed impeachable offenses. The question is, is is he going to follow through with that? Is he going to lead his conference in that direction? And I think that remains to be seen. He still has not said anything public uh, about his intentions. And of course, this is all happening in this incredibly collapsed time frame before inauguration. Is there a concern among Democrats about what this is going to do to the first days of the Biden presidency and the Biden agenda and the ability to tackle real pressing problems. I mean, not only confirming a cabinet, but also dealing with the pandemic and dealing with a lot of things that have been on the back burner politically for a while. Yeah, there's deep concern about that. And it it comes down to this. It's very difficult for the Senate, once you get into an impeachment trial, to do anything else. And the way the rules of the Senate are written, you have once it comes over from the House, you have to hold a trial. And there are certain rules for holding that trial that basically make it hard to do cabinet confirmations, to do legislation, to do anything else. And considering the last impeachment trial of President Trump lasted 20 days, there's just a lot of Democrats who are scratching their heads wondering, how can we do this in such a way that we at least allow Joe Biden to get some key cabinet secretaries confirmed first, if not, you know, work on a new round of coronavirus legislation or something else. And they're still working through what their options are on that. It may be difficult because they may need a lot of cooperation from Republicans if they're going to make any changes to the way the Senate works in this circumstance. Mike DeBonis covers Congress for The Post. I yield back the balance of my time. All time for debate has expired. Pursuant to House Resolution 41, the previous question is ordered on the resolution. The question is on adoption of the resolution. Those in favor say aye. Aye. 
Those opposed say no. In the opinion of the chair, the ayes have it. The gentleman from Ohio. Just before 5 p.m. on Wednesday, the House voted to impeach President Trump for the second time on the charge of incitement of insurrection. The vote was a bipartisan one this time, with 10 Republicans joining House Democrats in voting to impeach. On this vote, the ayes are 232, the nays are 197. The resolution is adopted. Without objection, the motion to reconsider is laid upon the table. 197 Republicans voted against impeaching the president. While so many of us have been captivated by the impeachment and the attack on the Capitol, there is still a pandemic happening. On Tuesday, more than 4,200 people died from COVID-19 in the U.S., a single-day death record for this country. Over 9 million doses of vaccine have been administered, but the rollout is still not happening fast enough for the people who are getting sick. I met Rosa Galdemez in the parking lot of Apple Valley Hospital. She was with her 19-year-old granddaughter, Joanna. Uh, She was coughing and wheezing and moaning with this really just painstaking, almost rhythmic groan. She had been admitted to another hospital a week earlier with COVID-19, but they released her and her symptoms got worse. So she came to Apple Valley and you immediately could tell that she was in a, a bad place. John Gerberg is a video journalist for The Post. He got incredibly rare access to a hospital in California where a COVID surge has completely overwhelmed the healthcare system. He talked about it with producer Lena Muhammad. And as quickly as they could, you know, they, they got her in a wheelchair and scurried her past all the other patients to protect them from transmission. Um, she has problems breathing. Uh, she's not eating. Do you know her medical problems at all? Um, she has diabetes, severe diabetes, and um, high blood pressure. Rosa, how many days have you been here? They rushed her into a hallway that had been converted into an ICU. It had been sealed at both ends, and they were treating dozens of COVID patients in this sealed-off hallway. And they got her on a ventilator. She's doing better already. Okay, from when she came in here. All right. Okay. Okay. We can do that. Okay, we're gonna do everything we can. That's what I can promise you. Okay. Okay. And they admitted Rosa in into the hospital. So I went to Apple Valley, California, which is a kind of rural working class city in what's called the high desert. It's about an hour and a half outside of Los Angeles. And I I went there with my colleagues, Scott Wilson and Michael Williamson. Um, And we went specifically to a hospital called St. Mary Medical Center. And just just for some context here, can you tell me a little bit about like the COVID numbers in California and specifically in Apple Valley? Like, why did you choose that area? They have been seeing huge numbers far surpassing anything they saw in the spring and in the early days of the pandemic. 
And the majority of that spike is happening in Southern California and the San Joaquin Valley. We wanted to go look at what was happening in those areas um, to see what they were dealing with. Mm. And what was what was the situation like inside the hospital? Like once you got there, what, what did you see? It was it was incredibly dire and, and urgent, I would say, inside the hospital. So one, two, she's in 42 now. 42, okay. I need three more dividers then, right? I mean, first of all, the, the ICUs alone were operating at 300% capacity just the day we were there. This is a hospital that has 20 ICU beds, but they were treating 60 patients at ICU level care. Um, So what they had to do, not only was the ICU itself completely full of COVID, but they had to seal off whatever space they could find. That meant sealing off parts of the lobby. That meant sealing off kind of corners and, and hallways. There were entire hallways that they would seal at both ends and pack them with gurneys and convert them into sealed off ICUs where they were treating COVID patients. They called them COVID pods. That itself was an incredible task and incredibly hard for the staff to keep up with. But then you also have to, you know, deal with the rest of people coming in for all sorts of other, whether it's car accidents or, you know, or heart issues or myriad other health issues that you need a hospital for. So then you saw the rest of the patients pushing out into into lobbies, into entryways, all the way out into the parking lot, actually. But what used to be the main lobby had been turned into the emergency room. So you had dozens of patients, you know, moaning and coughing and waiting for care just packed into the lobby. It kind of, it felt like kind of a mix between a military field hospital and a busy bus terminal. It was just overflowing, literally all the way out into the parking lot. Wow. And did you get to talk to any of the nurses or doctors who are dealing with this? And, and how, how, are they, how are they coping? It doesn't involve a lot of sleep. Everybody I talked to was incredibly exhausted, was working, you know, double shifts and more. I talked to Mendy Hickey, a registered nurse. I'm very tired today. I don't even know what day um, in a row we've been working. Uh, I've been working 12, 15 hours every day, as we all have been. We're here on weekends, we're here on nights, uh, we're watching over each other, but you know, we're pouring our hearts out to the patients and the staff. Um, it's hard, I'm tired, <laughs> yeah. But she also you know, told me about her kids and how she still tried to make time when she was out of work to go for bike rides with her children and clear her mind and how important that was to her. And that was kind of the only semblance of normalcy. But she really held on to that, um, both for, you know, for her family's sake and for her own. And you could tell how that really kind of helped her hold on. I also talked to another, another registered nurse, Jorge Silva. I've seen uh, approximately 10 people that I've that I know or that are family, friends, or neighbors, three, three unfortunately have passed. So, uh, three, it's, it's, it's tough, it's tough seeing all that. And for him, it was, it was prayer. You know, he, he's a self-described religious man and he said, I, I pray and I keep working. There's a lot of weight on the shoulders that we all carry. It's, it's depressing, but uh, we're all hopeful. That's the thing I think that we all cling on to. Hope. I'm a religious man, so I pray while I can. 
go home to my family and uh, and I look at them and that's what brings me happiness, that's what gets me out of my little depression. I think everybody kind of has to find their own way to to stay sane and hold on to some piece of hope, but there's also this just kind of nonstop momentum. You know, there's never not another case. There's never not another problem to address and hopefully do your best to solve. So sometimes just the momentum of it keeps people going, but um, it's, it's relentless. Everyone's getting sick with COVID at the same time. So our staff are calling out faster than we can get staff in. We've received a couple uh, traveler nurses from uh, the state of California recently, which is wonderful. Um, but the hard part is, is that everyone's fighting for the same resources at the same time. All of the hospitals in California are struggling. You can have all the resources in the world. You can have all the PPE and all the ventilators and you know all the material that you need. But if you don't have the staff to treat the patients, and at some point you don't even have the hours in the day to give the proper amount of care to all the patients that are there, all the gloves and gowns and masks in the world are not going to save those patients. We have uh, the medications we need that the FDA has approved. We have convalescent plasma for patients. We have all the things that we didn't have previously and patients still, it is effective, but these patients are just sicker. It, it's, I don't even know how to explain it. Um, it seems that once we get folks on a ventilator, it is really hard to get them off. Were you able to follow up with Rosa? Do you know what happened to her? I was actually, yeah. And, you know, there's a, it's hard to really celebrate good news in a story like this, but a small uh, glimpse of hope, I would say, or a small glimpse of good news was that Rosa was actually uh, released from the hospital just before Christmas. Oh, that's great. Um, and, yeah. And Joanna was was thrilled, and she was actually sending me pictures of of Rosa smiling at their at their outdoor table at home. So she was able to be home for Christmas. When the pandemic first hit, the biggest hotspot in the United States was in New York. And in April, I know you you were in New York, and you also went to a hospital there. How would you compare what you saw in New York back in April to what you're seeing in California now? Yeah. I mean, it's hard to make huge comparisons, but just right. from what I saw, mm-hmm. you know, personally working in, in both places during the heights of the pandemic, what I saw in Apple Valley felt a lot worse than New York. Um, New York was dire in so many ways both the city as a whole was just i've you know my whole family is from new york and i've you know i've spent my whole life in that city and i've never seen what i saw in new york in april it was a ghost city and and being inside of those hospitals they were overwhelmed they were working you know double and triple shifts they were nonstop. it was absolutely dire it was a race against time it was a race against death and I would never downplay what I saw in, in Brooklyn and in, in the hospitals then. But 
these were big city hospitals that, you know, they had a certain capacity. They were prepared for major events like this. And, you know, in a lot of ways, they were kind of, it was a worst case scenario, but they were acting based on what they had prepared for that worst case scenario. Right. Yeah. In Apple Valley, like they had never seen anything like that. And the patients spilling through the hallways all the way out into the parking lot, it was something that the hospital just so clearly was not prepared for. And the nurses and the doctors and the administrators were doing everything they possibly could. And it really was amazing to see all the, you know, the resources and the creative tactics that they were using to really ultimately save lives. But that doesn't change how desperate the situation was. And what I saw in Apple Valley was, for me, far worse than anything I saw in New York. Wow. You know, it seems like in the beginning of the pandemic, California was doing very well. I mean, it was one of the first states to lock down. It was a state that was adamant about like not overwhelming it, its hospital. But now it it feels like the entire state is just falling into despair. What happened? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the question, right? I I think public health experts are going to be asking for a long time what happened, you know, across the country and especially here in California. Officials have tried to take aggressive measures in a lot of ways to get ahead of the pandemic and sometimes faced, you know, blowback in the public for, for being too strict on, you know, on these guidelines and the lockdowns. But obviously, whatever's happening, it it hasn't been enough because, you know, cases and deaths are still climbing. People point to, you know, mass skepticism. People definitely point to the holidays. And experts are kind of, you know, sounding all the alarms about it. But it doesn't seem to be enough. I mean, I, I think it, it speaks to how much we still don't know about the virus and about this pandemic. You know, a lot of this has been kind of learning as we go. And there's a hard line to kind of navigate between how much you lock down and restrict and, you know, in order to save lives, but also keep society and the economy running. And there's no perfect solution to that. So, you know, California is seeing that like everybody else. And as far back as the spring, experts were telling us that, you know, the winter could be far worse than what we were seeing then. And, you know, by many measures, it looks like they were right. John Gerberg is a video journalist for The Post. He spoke to Post Reports producer Lena Mohammed. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. There is so much to keep on top of right now. The impeachment, the pandemic, the inauguration, investigations into exactly what happened at the Capitol last week. 
our reporters are working on all of these stories. Go to WashingtonPost.com for the latest. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 